This episode of No Wrong Answers is brought to you by the Kauffman Foundation, investing in educators and lifting up the Kansas City region, which is dedicated to learning together to improve educational and economic success. Learn more at Kauffman.org. One was quiet and composed, the other was angry and combative, and they both say something about how boys and girls should act, what the Kavanaugh-Ford hearings mean for our kids. Plus, what time does your school start? Whatever time it is, it's likely too early, according to experts. But what would happen if schools move back start times an hour? Our teachers say the world would end. And what's the difference between a zero and a 50%? Maybe everything. Those stories plus kids these days on this edition of the No Wrong Answers podcast. Welcome to No Wrong Answers, the weekly podcast that gives you a teacherly take on the world. I'm your host, Kyle Palmer. I used to be in the classroom as an English teacher. Now I'm behind the mic as a radio journalist. I'm joined, as always, by a group of hardworking teachers who have a lot on their minds and are ready to talk. So let's introduce them. Luann Fox, what do you teach? I teach students how to read, write, and think better. I teach English. <laughs> you've really perfected that over the, all the episodes <laughs> you've been on. Uh, Jason Staliga, follow that up. What do you teach? I teach high school honors and general chemistry, the math and understanding of the matter of the world. <laughs> okay. All right. Now we're just bragging. Lynn Shipley, what do you teach? Uh, I teach other teachers. I'm an instructional coach. You are an instructional coach. Now, what did you used to teach in the classroom? I taught uh, computers and uh, anything having to do with computers. Project Lead the Way. So Lynn, Jason, Luann, they're all public school teachers in the Kansas City area. Well, let's get to our first topic today. Last week's Supreme Court confirmation hearings featuring nominee Brett Kavanaugh and his accuser, Christine Blasey Ford, riveted the nation and, in their aftermath, have created a fiery new flashpoint in our country's ongoing culture war. There are intense and seemingly intractable disagreements about whether Kavanaugh should be confirmed or not, and we will not get to that question on this podcast. There are plenty of other podcasts for that. Believe me, I've listened to a lot of them over the past week or so. No, what we want to do today on No Wrong Answers is talk about gender. How did gender play a role in the Kavanaugh-Ford hearings? Did our teachers see anything in the behaviors and attitudes of Brett Kavanaugh and Christine Blasey Ford that reminded them of the girls and boys they teach? And more deeply, what does this seminal cultural event say still about how boys and girls are expected to act and behave in America today and even into the future? I guess, what were your, as teachers, you always view the world through the prism of teaching and education. How did you react? What was your kind of gut level basic reaction to what you saw in those hearings? My reaction was basically, here we go again, and nothing has changed. After all of these years of letting young ladies know that they still can do anything and be anything, we're back to the same gender roles of she had to look very quiet as she told her story. And he got to be very angry as he told his. What, what it reminds me of is that girls have to be more conscious of how they, how they are people in the world. They just have to be much more conscious of how they appear. They have to consider how the message is received, whereas boys don't seem to have to care as much about how any of their messages are received. Yeah, there's a, there's a sense that there are no repercussions for the man. 
but there are repercussions for the woman. Uh, one of the many things that was written after this occurred, Haley Sweetland Edwards writing in Time magazine, Ford was gracious, accommodating, and sweet, while Kavanaugh was powerful, aggrieved, and incandescent with rage. She goes on to say, though, that they both fulfilled long-held archetypes of nice girls and tough guys, and both, in their both separate ways, were effective for the political case they were making. Do you see your students reflected in how Brett Kavanaugh and Christine Blasey Ford were acting in their separate hearings? When my female students want help, they're always less direct about it. When they're asking me for help, they're certainly less direct in class. By and large, I'm always going to get boys in my English class who will take the risks and ask the questions. And I generally have to say, I want to hear from girls now. And I and I am noticing that that is pervasive. We were talking, uh, the four of us, before we came on the mics. And really, I asked you all if this, the, the Kavanaugh-Ford hearings had penetrated uh, into your schools. Were your kids following it? Were they talking about it? And really, for the most part, you all said no. I mean, Luann said you was, it was homecoming week at your school, right. so nothing was really, right. nothing, the kids weren't really talking about anything besides homecoming. But I Indeed. wonder as as this cultural moment passes, and of course, we're still really in the midst of it, and you know, the, the confirmation process is still moving forward. Do you think it will have an impact, um, I guess, especially on on girls, on, on female students and how they see themselves in the world and, and, and see their place in the world? Well, I I hope so. Um, One of the things I was thinking about was that why this may not have the impact that you you might think, just looking as an outsider, is because these kids were not alive when uh, Anita Hill was was testifying, and they they really don't know much about that history at all. And and, and the teachers do. I mean, we, we were around back then, so we have a much, I think sense of intensity about this and like that we are having this cultural moment that is that is explosive and I don't I don't think our kids just see that at all. And that was, I guess that might be speak to maybe the exhaustion that you started this segment with. I mean, the, the exhaustion in your voice that saying, here we go again, or nothing has really changed. I mean, really dating back to uh, your own reflections and thoughts during the Anita, Anita Hill Clarence Thomas hearings almost 30 years ago. I guess it speaks to that, doesn't it? I can honestly say that our school is 90, uh, 95% African-American. They don't look at this as being their issue. This is not their issue. Anita Hill would have been their issue, but they're too young to know these things. When we talk about how women are treated, our girls, really after the fifth or sixth grade, they start to pull themselves back, allow boys to take the lead because this is what society says should take place. So. They're socialized to do that. It's important that they see women who look like them, who act like them, who are smart and are okay with being smart and okay with being articulate and okay with being uh, on their side to push them forward. This, they're not going to look at this particular case and think that's the case. I think, I think also this particular case deals with uh, judicial nominees, which goes to your point. I'm not sure they quite understand the impact that that's going to have exactly. on their generation moving forward. And I think also, too, and I hope I do hope this is true, even though I know there are some cases out there, that, that the girls have never had to experience what a sexual assault is or have had to have gone through that trauma. Well, that, that brings up a good point. I, would, I will repeat a, a statistic I put into last episode when we actually talked about sexual assault more directly in the context of the Kavanaugh-Ford hearings, which hadn't happened when we taped the last episode. Some reputable numbers put the percentage of teenagers who say they've been assaulted or abused sexually 
before the age of 18, somewhere between 20%, so like one in five. So, I mean, it, it does happen, I think, more frequently than we would like to admit or, or at least hope. And it happens a lot. And I, and I guess I want to ask, do you think just having this conversation out there in the cultural ether, I mean, we're we, as a society, we're now talking very directly about sexual assault. Does that affect how your how your kids will view it going forward? Is it, a, I mean, I don't want to, I hesitate to, to say, is that a positive thing? But is it something that will affect them? I don't know about affecting them, actually, but when you're talking about sexual assault, that's genderized, too. I mean, I've done some thinking about this, and then you think, who else has been sexually assaulted? And, you know, anytime a a man has been sexually assaulted as a boy by a priest, and, like, it takes them years to come forward, nobody nobody questions them. Men don't get questioned when they've been sexually assaulted if they come forward. It took one to come forward for Kevin Spacey. And Kevin Spacey had a lot of repercussions. It took a gazillion women to come forward for Harvey Weinstein. And so that really resonates with me. Well, right, yeah. right. But I mean, that's what really resonates with me is that women have to keep saying the same things over and over and over again. And it's the sheer numbers that make, that tilt things. Whereas for men, that does not seem to be the, issue, the case. I, I'd, I'd like to say that we have got to be clear and honest of what gender assault looks like. Uh, because it's confusing, uh, the things that we see on TV. And, and the fact is that boys or, or whoever is in charge can just say, just kidding, and shrug the whole thing off. And we're supposed to let it go. And our girls are left feeling uh, guilt-ridden for uh, for perceiving what has taken place as being something can that you, is negative. Uh, this is an interesting point. Can you say more about that? What do you mean by, like, give me a specific scenario where a boy or a group of boys might shrug something off as, I, I was just kidding, or it was boys being boys, when in fact it could be interpreted uh, as a sexual assault or something that's, a, that's much more violent and harmful. So if a boy hits a girl on the behind and uh, she turns around uh, instinctively and they're giggling and they're, oh, we were just kidding. You know, they just flippantly state that it's not important, where she could be personally violated. And actually, I experienced that this week at my school. A young lady was touched inappropriately. I see her getting upset with the boy and, and swinging to hit at him. And when it comes down to it, he touched her inappropriately, and she's reacting. We see the reaction from women, which often comes across as violent or muted or anything. We see that reaction, but we do not deal with the original problem, which was the fact that he touched her body and invaded her space. Yeah, I, <clears throat> I had an incident uh, not so long ago where the, the boys in the class uh, dropped a tampon like <laughs> underneath the girl's chair and uh, they had like colored it in in red. Oh and, it was, and it was meant as a, a joke. That's yeah. what it was. It was meant as, oh, we're just trying to be funny. Oh, look, that fell out of your purse. Oh, you're going to be embarrassed. The girl came up to me actually said, you know, I, I just want you to be aware of this. She goes, I don't want, I, I just, I don't want any actions taken unless it happens again. And then we're going to, we're going to go down and we're going to have a discussion about it. That actually made me feel in some way, I, I felt that the, here, this girl is empowered to have that discussion back to what kind of what we were saying that mm-hmm. she felt open and free. But to, she didn't, to, she, she didn't want you to say anything about it. Well, though. yeah, because her thought was that if it happened again, like, you know, it's one of those situations where if it happens one time, you know, it's not necessarily a big deal because, you know, the boys are 14 and 15 years old, right? But they don't quite understand that, that concept of it. But she, but she made it known to them that, that she would follow through uh, next time if it was to happen. And so she, she, so the concern is they got away with it one time. Yeah. Basically, mm-hmm. but that empowers them to do it again to do somewhere it again. else. Yeah. 
as opposed to stopping it right then. Yeah, I mean, I can't help but draw parallels to, um, I mean, Christine Blasey Ford's own testimony of, of, I mean, when she started off, she said, you know, I didn't know if I should come forward and um, she agonized for weeks and certainly in a, in a very, very high stakes situation, um, but agonized for, for days and weeks about whether she should tell anyone eventually called the Washington Post tip line. But, the, but then even after that said, you know, if I say something, what's going to change? I wonder as a teacher, Jason, like what, what, what was going through your head? I mean, did you, did you, did you think, yes, of course, I'm going to re- respect your wishes. Um, but at the same time, I, I guess as a teacher, were you also thinking like, this is, I need to say something to these boys. <clears throat> I actually just had that thought in my head. Like I literally like upon upon that reflection of what Lynn said. It's, it's interesting when you have an adult voice who who pops into your brain, you start to think about like your own personal experiences and just how foolish kids are at such an early age. You know, you didn't see it happen, I guess, in my head. Like, you know, I don't know. I didn't I didn't see the tampon, I didn't see the applicator, I didn't see the piece of plastic. I didn't see it happen. It was reported like two hours later, like there was just all those thoughts that went through my head and, you know, I didn't even know the names of the boys. And I guess in my head, I was just like, I guess I just listened to what the students said. Like I, I, there was that sense of respecting the wishes of what she wanted. And so I didn't, I didn't even process any further up to that because in my mind, I was actually really happy that she felt comfortable, that she wanted to express it, that she wanted to uh, you know, let me be known about it, that it was came outside later on. And I just like, that was the part that I felt really proud of her for that. And I didn't think about the next step. I didn't think about down the line, Lynn, like that didn't come in my head. It's, it's important that yeah. men have a conversation with boys, yeah. women have conversations with girls yeah. and about how their roles look as far mm-hmm. as uh, what the world sees. Do you think these conversations will uh, change or get more, I don't want to say easier, but get I, I, maybe just the, the, incre- the frequency will increase. I, I absolutely do. I'd read something um, the other day that said the Brock Turners of the world will grow up to be the Brett Kavanaugh's that, that continue to let the Brock Turners off. And it's just kind of, I, I do see that. And just to be clear, Brock Turner is the, the, the Stanford athlete who was accused of, of rape, well, charged actually with rape and convicted and given a very, uh, what, what many people saw as a very lenient um, right. sentence. Uh, sorry to interrupt. Yeah. No, it's okay. But it's just since we've had the, the week for the investigation to come through, it just means that you've got the country that's going to stay on pins and needles then for the for the week. And then it's going to erupt, you know, things will erupt again. And it's just like, and then after that's done, there's going to be another um, executive at a, at a movie company or something or, you know, something like Les Moonves. <laughs> you know, something will happen again. And I think something that's just going to keep this in the in the news. It'll come from the sports world, the entertainment world, the political world. I, I do think that this will be a thing that we'll continue to talk about. And so your, your boys can see these things happen, but I, I guess what do... What do you feel like you need to tell your boys in order to really truly change uh, behavior going into the future? I think they need to understand how their actions objectify, uh, demean, or belittle the, the women that are around them. There are so many visualizations in the world that these boys live in where it seems like it's okay. And it, it, takes, it takes people like us as educators to go up to them and, and actually spell it out for them. 
Our podcast today is sponsored by the Kauffman Foundation, learning together with families, educators, entrepreneurs, and innovators to develop quality education that prepares all of Kansas City's students for the future of learning and work. Join the conversation by visiting Kauffman.org or on Twitter at KauffmanFDN. The school grind is in full swing. That means you are probably getting to school before dawn and are fresh-faced and over-caffeinated in front of your kids by, say, what, 7.45 a.m., maybe earlier? Well... Good news is, if that bothers you, there is a growing recognition that the traditional early start time for many schools is not only annoying, but bad for kids. Nearly 90% of schools start their day at 8.30 or earlier. This goes against advice from the American Pediatric Association, which says kids, especially teenagers, need to sleep in later due to natural changes in their physiology. The California state legislature, in fact, recently passed a law mandating schools start later than 8.30 a.m. by the year 2021, but we should say the governor vetoed that bill. So we want to ask our teachers, should their schools start later? And if so, is that even feasible? Uh, first, what time do you all start school? What time do you have kids in front of you? Our middle school starts at 8.30. Our secondary schools in our district start at 8.30. I start first block at 7.30, and I have kids in my room by 7.05. Ooh. We start in my district at 8 o'clock, and we can have students in there at 7 and after. Okay, so we run the gamut between, I mean, Jason, you have kids. You have kids in your room at 7.05? 7.05. Some of them are waiting by the door when I walk in. Uh, do you see an effect on kids, like in your first period class? <laughs> this is like, like any teacher will know, yes. <laughs> the answer is yes. <laughs> Luann. Oh, my you're, gosh. You're... Oh, my gosh. It is just like I, I, you know, I just feel like the comedian. I totally feel like I'm the one on stage, and uh, I just want to be the coach. But I have to be the performer because they're just not with me. They're just not awake. First hour is like no other hour in the day. It's like a bad room in a comedy club. Oh you really gosh. have to, like, up it your is. game. <laughs> it is. It's like it is. it's such a tough crowd. Yeah. I'm dropping a paper clip because that's, <laughs> that's what it sounds like at 7.30 in the morning. It is so quiet. It is eerily quiet. Like, I'm afraid there's a clown that's going to come out of the back mm-hmm. closet. Like, it's, it's so hard to get them to engage. You, you, most of them are staying up till, you know, 1 or 2 in the morning because you ask them, why didn't you get any sleep? And they're like, oh, I was playing Fortnite till 1 or 2 right. in the morning. And, mm-hmm. and so you, you try it. Like, I feed off of that. Like, I feed off of engagement, right? I, mm-hmm. I am the performer in the classroom. And, and so trying to get them to do labs or trying to get them to, to work with their hands, like you have to, for that first hour, you actually have to change your curriculum and change your instruction because mm-hmm. they have to become more active. And then you flip to second block and all of a sudden the kids are wide awake and ready to go and, and they're loud and they're discussing and they're, they're, your jokes are flying back and forth and you're like d- developing relationships between students and you're like, this is the way class should be. But yeah, that, that first block is so, so it's almost like you have another. It's almost like you have another prep just yeah, for yeah. first period. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, I've been known to, to get kids to get up and, like, walk around my room. I've uh, had kids do jumping jacks, jump in place. I'll have them do mountain pose or tree pose, mm-hmm. something to get, like, the yeah. blood going. I'll, I'll take a class field trip around the school. We'll go down to the library. We'll go up and down the stairs just to get the blood flowing. You know, sometimes we'll just go get a glass of water or something. I mean, just something to get them moving so that they can come back and be more focused. Well, notably silent during this conversation is the woman who starts at 8.30. <laughs> I'm listening to this discussion. I'm like, what a difference an hour makes. Because um, 8.30, pretty much our kids are really ready to go. We don't release them from the buses until about 8.15, 8.20. And they get their breakfasts and go directly to class. And we're ready to go. Well, I will say this, this topic came to mind for me in planning this episode because I read a 
an op-ed in the New York Times by Henry Nichols. He's a British educator and author, has actually written a book about um, the sleep habits of teenagers. He writes in the New York Times, prying a teenager out of bed at 6 a.m. to get to school is the equivalent of waking an adult at 4 a.m. The brain will be at its least active in the 24-hour cycle. He's just talking about the physiological things going on inside teenagers' bodies. Um so you all have kind of discussed what kids are like in the morning, but what would, do you think, what would be the effect if your school pushed, especially Jason and Luann, pushed the start time back an hour? Gosh, so much. I mean, I think it would, it would wreck society. Let's just like, <laughs> let's just go on and say that because you got kids that are doing after school practices. You've got kids that are doing after school jobs, parents that run their schedules, their school, their work schedules around the school schedules. And it's like, I don't see that changing wholesale. So this is like, it, it is the after school activities that really is the big practical barrier towards a later start. Time. You're going to take out a huge chunk of the low, low, low wage workforce, right? When you can't employ teens because schools are getting out at four and four thirty, whatever, that's going to, that's going to mess with that. I mean, it would be, I think it'd be wonderful if that change could be made, but I've, I've known for a long time, school's been more about the adults running it than it has ever been about kids. Unfortunately, I, I was getting ready to say, uh, we seem to not look at what's good for the kids right now. What is better for the students? Is it better to start later, an hour later, and disrupt all this other economic progress that teenagers, you know, give to the world? Or is it better for our kids if they start an hour later and become better prepared citizens and employers and employees in their future? Yeah, this is definitely a community-based effort. Uh, it has to be across the board. This is not just a school-wide decision. This is uh, getting your work groups together and really looking at how does this have an impact on the schools that are the schools that are around you, the the, the workforce that is around you, the restaurants that are around you, et cetera. But I, the other piece to this, of course, is sports because mm-hmm. athletics. Mm-hmm. Although we are student athletes, we're most of the time athletic students, and there is a distinction between the two. And trying to get uh, local schools that you're traveling to or that you're playing with on that same schedule. The other piece that I I worry about is the parent the parents that are working. And if you have younger kids who are starting early versus middle school kids, do you feel comfortable, you know, if kids are in a particular neighborhood, leaving your kids home alone while you go off to work? And so if you get the kids to school earlier, then you have that capacity to make sure that they get on the bus and that they're safe in the morning and that uh, then you can get on with your with well, your work. Lynn, how do I mean... What's been the effect on your yeah. district? So I'll, I'll speak to both of those sports. Yeah. The teams that we play against have to make that accommodation. We're not going to change our nice. school hours. And oftentimes we have worked it out that our coaches have that fourth or eighth block off because, mm-hmm. and so that they're able to leave a little bit earlier with our student athletes. That's one. Uh, secondly, having the smaller kids go to school earlier provides a little bit of time. The, younger, the older kids are able to take a little bit better care of themselves. They can get to the buses. Latchkey, that term latchkey kid has been a, a, a term since I was a kid where, you know, my brother and I got to school early, uh, you know, got home and let ourselves in. This is a, not as big of a problem as I think people make it out to be. I think it's more of a problem of what society is used to. I wish everyone had my grandma in the third grade where she went to wake me up at 6.15 and I didn't get up. And she walked out the door and slammed it, and I heard the car drive away. And I woke up, and I was like, how am I getting to school today? And then I had that moment where I started crying, and then she came back at like 7.05, and I was dressed 
with my book bag waiting by the door and she said you will never do this again sweet little Jason sweet little Jason we should say you all were talking about the economic impacts of keeping kids in school longer well again Henry Nichols writing in the New York Times um, he cites statistics that actually would, would say that Starting school later would, would have great economic benefits. The The Rand Corporation estimates that opening school doors after 8.30 would contribute at least $83 billion to the national economy within a decade because of improved educational outcomes and reduced car crashes. The Brookings Institution says that uh, later school start times would lead to an average increase in lifetime earnings for students of $17,000. That sounds I mean, that sounds nice. But um, aren't those long-range <laughs> things that oh, yeah, don't course, yeah. have the... Um, the the immediate the immediate impact that everybody is interested in seeing, yeah, right? Like yeah. society, we're so narrow focused, right. we're yeah. so narrow minded. We don't often think about the big picture because we don't have the patience to wait it out to see the uh, the benefits that come. Uh, I do want to study uh, before Swipe we go. I do want to circle back to something, Jason. You said earlier. You said a lot of your kids come in and say, <laughs> "Oh, I was." Um, I was up late because I was playing Fortnite. I was playing video games. Increasingly, I've, I feel like teachers hear that excuse, right? That um, you are up with a screen or you're up playing video games or you're up looking at your phone um, or scrolling through social media. And there actually has been research done that shows that the kind of blue-tinged light of the LED screens actually uh, affects um, your brain chemically to where it convinces you that it's not time to go to sleep, that it, it the the... the your brain shutting down around 8, 9, 10 o'clock. Actually, if you're looking at your phone and that screen actually wakes you back up. Um, are you hearing that more and more? Kids are staying up. I mean, why not just just put it on the other end? Why, why, why don't we just get kids to go to bed earlier? Yeah, right. Because they, did, they <laughs> didn't They didn't have my mother who yeah, made me go to bed at 9. If yeah, the light was underneath the door, happen. she'd be knocking on it and walking in. No, <laughs> you... Uh, you're not gonna yeah. I have some deep scars. You have to be yeah. an adult, and then and then you like, I love my nap, and I want to go to yeah. sleep, and oh, that's a treat as opposed to, yeah, <laughs> uh-huh. that's happened to me. What I thought was interesting in the study was that it talked about how kids were only in front of screens for, on average, six hours a day, which I thought, which which I read that. <laughs> 25% and then I, of the day. 20% of the day. But then I thought to myself, like, I'm one-to-one in my district, and my kids use their computers yeah. all day long, Absolutely. right? And, and when they're not using their computers and they're in the hallway, they're using their phones. Right. So I was thinking that that number was was low, I'm sure. uh, I guess, based on the demographic of, of, of where these kids are to the actual amount of screen time that they have every day. So it's hopeless to expect that we can um, work on this problem on the front end and try to get kids to go to bed earlier. Well, there are parents that can actually take their students' phones mm-hmm. if they're interested in doing that. But uh, Really? I parents can do that? Yeah. Rumor has it. <laughs> Again, it has to go back to your home life, you know, and, and making mm-hmm. sure that there are you know, structures put into place for their kids. I mean, I had a 9.30 bedtime when I was a freshman in high school, and it was We're 10 o'clock. We're learning so much about you. <laughs> yeah, it was 10 o'clock when I was a sophomore. Whoa. And so, so yeah, and there's just those, I mean, but I, that was really structured throughout my whole entire life. And I, when you ask parents about it, they're like, yeah, well, we go to bed at 9.30, so we don't really know what our kids are doing after 9.30. And I'm yep. like, there has to be a change. There has to be a societal change, a familial change within the nuclear family, however you want to look at it, that prioritizes what you said, taking those devices away 
and kids actually getting the sleep they need to well, be successful. And and another part of this is also that we've all, we also have a culture of students who just believe they can do everything and they they want to be involved in everything. So we've got students who are in sports and have a job and do this and do that. And so then they can't even get to homework until 11 o'clock at night. And so then they're doing homework until like one in the morning and that kind of thing. But that definitely goes back to the home life. But, um, you know, pick and choose as opposed to thinking that you can do absolutely everything. Well, we're going to move on to our final topic An eighth grade teacher in Port St. Lucie, Florida, says she was fired because she refused to give 50% to students for assignments they didn't turn in. So that'd be 50% in F. She refused to give a 50%. Instead, she gave them zeros. The teacher, Diane Torado, wrote this message on the whiteboard for her students to see the next day after she apparently had been fired. Quote, by kids... Mrs. Torado loves you and wishes you the best in life. I have been fired for refusing to give you a 50% for not handing anything in, question mark, question mark. Just some more details reported by WPTV in Florida. The zeros in question were given for what Ms. Torado called an explorer notebook project. Some students didn't turn this project in. And Toronto apparently gave them zeros for that. So this appears to be more than just a, a simple daily assignment or something, but an actual project they had been working on. Toronto, WPTV reports, had just begun working at the school from which she was fired in August and was still in a probationary period, which seems to have made it easier to fire her. A spokesperson for the Port, Port St. Lucie School District says the district does not have a policy prohibiting zeros for assignments not turned in, though admitted some schools have discussed the range of possible grades that, that can be given under such circumstances, and the school that Toronto worked at apparently um, had been asking its teachers to give 50% for assignments that had not been turned in. All right. Our teachers, I know, are ready to talk about this mm-hmm. one because before we came on the mics. Does your school or you, I guess, personally employ the no zero grading policies? So I've changed. No. Yeah. Um, I've been a proponent for 15 years of uh, giving zeros for assignments, but I switched schools and sco- switched districts and we had a different policy. And so now if a student misses an assignment, a homework assignment, lab, whatever, they can make it up with 50% of the credit as long as I have not turned it back in. Um, however, if I pass, I pass the papers back, then that grade becomes a zero. So you still give zeros? I still. I just, But now there's more opportunities for them to not uh, necessarily fail. Yeah, if a student doesn't do the assignment, doesn't even try, or in my vernacular, like just belly up, right, to the bar to, 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 to get some stuff, then, then it's an NHI, a not handed in, and so that's going to be a zero percent, which is mutable. Once the you know once um, you know they they become less intractable, and 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 we're actually working on the business of of learning together. Yeah, definitely. So you give zeros when nobody does anything. I mean, it's I, one of one of my points is going to be if uh, if a student does something right, and if a student doesn't do it well, the student does something. There's you know, you can work with that. The student has actually like honored the covenant that is supposed to be about teaching and learning. And so when they're doing that, then you can certainly work with that. I don't think a student gets a zero 
when when they try. Failure is just a step on the way to being successful. But if you don't if you don't play, I mean, like you know, you miss a hundred percent of the shots that you never take in basketball. So, so no you've problem. got to start to shoot. Yeah. So no problem giving zeros for an assignment that's not turned in, whether where a student has not shown. Right, but it's always any- followed up by a conversation mm-hmm. about like what that covenant is about. There is no just like oh, you're just going to sit there and audit my class and get the zero all the time. I mean, that's that doesn't fly either. I mean, you know, we've got lots of protocols in place with the counselors and the parents. So there's a that sense that you can give a zero, but you should also, as a teacher, be be ready or willing to do some kind of follow-up. to make Absol- sure. Oh, yeah. I, I think that it would be malpractice not to. I personally don't give zeros. I do give 50%, even for students that have not turned in assignments. But I, I feel like we're missing some key pieces here. Mm. One, who are the students that did not turn in the assignments and why? I go back to thinking about my nephews when their mother was uh, passing away from cancer they missed assignments. Did they deserve zeros? Was a conversation take uh, taking place with my brother regarding what was taking place in the home? So I, I think that we're missing some key elements about her relationships with the students and why they did those things. I also know that at 50 is just as devastating at F as, as a zero is. But a 50 gives that opportunity to make up those grades in 10-point increments, just like a 90 to 100 equals an A. We don't say, ooh, the kid turned something in. Anything from 50 to 100 is an A. Uh, but I understand the uh, frustration of having a project and the kids not doing the work. Those conversations should take place with the parents. They should take place with the student. They should take place with an administrator in tow. They should take place to understand what is going on with that child to have them not do the assignment. And that's where we look at the equity piece. We just can't give zeros across the board because they didn't do it. We have to find out why. <clears throat> Is there a practical difference between a zero and a 50 <coughs> in terms of what a, a, a student can recover from or, or what might make it more feasible for them to, to eventually show mastery? So we're going to look at it numerically. If you get a zero on one assignment and a 100 on the other assignment, your average is going to be a 50 if, if, if both assignments have equal weight. If you get a 50 and a 100, your average is going to be a 75 which is about a C, which is, to me, showing what the grade level, the grade letter equals what the actual percentage is. That's just me personally. I cannot assign or ascribe that to everyone, but I think it's more fair about where the child actually is. Does that mean that kids will therefore, more kids will pass the course without actually mastering the material? Because as I listen to that and you get a 50 and you get a 50 and you have a 100, now you're at like a 66.7%, and you get another 50, and now you're at 250 divided by 4, and you're right around a 60%. And then it, it just seems like every time you add a 50, and yeah, that percentage goes down, but if you can, you know, if you can get a higher grade down the line, you're going to bring that percentage back up. And then, and then my personal fear in all of this, and I, I just want to like go back to the very beginning, which was these kids could come into class, do absolutely no work. They can just sit in a chair turn nothing in and still get 50% for just being there and showing up that day. And, and, and to me, uh, you know, that, that's where I struggle with this because I, to, to Luann's point, you know, they may not turn it in or to Lynn's point, they may not turn it in, but, but if they're putting forth effort, then there's a sense of, yeah, we can really work with that kid to at least, you know, have them show understanding of the material that's being presented. But I, but I'm not, I would never, on a philosophical basis, and I shouldn't say never, but give a kid a 50% just for being in the room for the day that we do the assignment. I have a, I have a real problem with that. 
You really, yeah. yeah. You want to guard against, because um, kids are smart, and guard against kids gaming the system. But, I mean, they, they would get an F either way, wouldn't they? I mean, you know, whether you give 50. No, not really, because if you, if, you, if you just sit out three assignments and you do half, half okay on, on one, you know, numerically, that's going to get you overpassing. Oh, so you're saying but like— I, so But I'm, I'm going to look at weighting assignments. Right. See, I believe in weighting assignments. If I do an a, a assessment that takes all of those things into account, and that's got a heavier weight, and that child still has a, a D or C, they're not going to pass that class. You have to be clear about the weight that that particular assignment has in going uh, in towards their grade, their final grade. It's just not – and I would think of this differently if I, we know now live in a world where everyone gets participation points just for showing up. You know, the, the, the team that loses every game gets a participation trophy. I'm against things like that. But that's the society we live in now. That's an interesting point because I, I was just thinking about it in terms of my class structure. So if, if that was 50 percent, if that 50 percent that the kids were getting were in the classwork grade, that's really only 15 percent of their grade because the majority of their grade is based on their tests and they're weighted at 75 percent. Yes. And so if you're looking at it from that perspective, which we don't know from this particularly, what was the weight of those notebooks? Was that a class project? Does the teacher do total points or is, or is that assignment weighted? That, that's another way to think about it because then you could, you could have like a – you know, you could have like a 10% category where it's just classwork. And so if they're there and they're participating per se, they get 50% even if they didn't turn it in. But if you're doing total points and you're giving 50%, that has a, has a different impact on the, the grade uh, that the kid might receive. You know, I don't know anything about chemistry, you know, or anything like that. And I'm just thinking like if I was a student, and I wish I did know about chemistry, but if like if I was to do something and I got a 50% and I super tried and the kid next to me just like drew air and also got a 50%, I think I would feel pretty crappy about myself. I think that would make me want to actually quit learning because if I'm like, you know, if my aptitude is not that great and I'm trying and I'm getting 50%, but I could get the same thing by not turning anything in. What is my incentive to actually work? And so I'm asking, do you have a category for effort? Because I think what you're saying is correct. I, I don't disagree with what you're saying, Luann, but I also know that there is an effort that takes place for students that come to class on time, students mm -hmm. who turn in their work, something even if it's wrong or not done correctly, I think that there's consideration that needs to take place for that right. because that kid is going to go way farther than that kid that just sits back and does right. nothing. So I agree with you totally. Okay. But I think that there needs to we need to discuss effort and the fact of just honestly lack of will or desire to do anything. Before we go to kids these days, let's tell you about some other education stories that caught our eye recently. It's time for the headlines. Vaccination rates in some wealthy parts of Los Angeles are as low as in South Sudan, where there's currently a civil war going on. As a result, health officials in L.A. are seeing cases of ailments like whooping cough skyrocket. <laughs> many many, many well-to-do parents in L.A. have bought into the unproven anti-vaccine hysteria ginned up by celebrities like Jenny McCarthy. In some schools, nearly 70 percent of parents have filed so-called personal belief exemptions to get their children out of being vaccinated. 
For just the second time since Donald Trump took office, a U.S. Senate committee recently held a hearing on federal education funding. Ed Week reports that several state education chiefs used the hearing to discuss how their schools were using federal funds to revamp their accountability systems. But the hearings were really dominated by talk about using federal money to arm teachers. It no. remains the position of Never. U.S. <laughs> education Secretary Betsy DeVos that school should uh, school money schools should be able to use federal money to purchase guns for teachers and train them on how to use them. One Democratic senator in the hearing called that the quote dumbest idea yes. I've ever heard. <laughs> yes. Luann agrees. A Texas mother took heat on social media recently for posting a picture of her son, who was in fifth grade, wearing a shirt with the words, I am a bully, scrawled on it. The mother explained that this was apparently done after she heard her son had been calling other kids' names at school. I am very that's old. Like the <laughs> that's, that, that, that's, that's like on like social media when the dog has the yeah. picture around his neck of like the well, cookies he got here's, into. Here's, Jeez. Here's, here's, here's what the mother said to local TV station KTRK. I am very old school. I don't coddle my children or sugarcoat the world for them. As one child psychologist said in response, it's not a good idea to embarrass your child and solidify a negative identity in him as an elementary school child. Right. Oh. The psychologist is basically saying what you said, Luann. Yeah. And those were some of the headlines from other education stories that caught our eye this week. Coming up, kids these days. But first, this episode of No Wrong Answers is sponsored by the Kauffman Foundation. No Wrong Answers retains total editorial control. And what our teachers say are their personal opinions, which may not reflect the official policies of the schools and districts they work for. Like us at Facebook, follow us on Twitter, just search for the No Wrong Answers podcast by Fountain City Frequency. Find us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Once you find us, subscribe and leave us a review. It helps. There are no other podcasts like ours giving you a teacherly take on the world. If you've enjoyed the conversation you've heard here, subscribe, leave us a review, and keep the conversation going. Now, kids these days, Luann... What Hi. are your kids into? Hello. Well, my, it's it was homecoming week, so they were into pajama day on Monday, right? I and tacky love tours. pajama day. Oh my, dude, I wore who a, doesn't I wore love a union pajama suit. day? Union who doesn't love awesome. pajama day? And I had PT for my shoulder um, that afternoon, and I went to PT in pajamas, and I hope that they believed that um, I was just uh, appropriating what the students were doing and that I just am not that big of a slob. But anyway, um, pajama day, homecoming, um, homecoming king and queen, our football team is not accustomed to winning much, and that <laughs> held true <laughs> for the weekend. So, uh, I will say when I was teaching, there was always an open question whether pajama day would be totally appropriate. <laughs> was pajama day appropriate at your school? Oh, yeah, it was oh, totally okay. Absolutely, okay. yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Love that. All right. Uh, Lynn, what are your kids into? We are into our sock hop. Uh, we're asking our kids to get back, and we're going to have our first dance in October. And we're asking them to bring a fresh, clean pair of socks to provide to the homeless during the uh, holiday season. Oh, well, that's nice. So it's, it's a sock hop double meaning. Yes. <laughs> Very good. Well, Jason, trying to, try to follow that up. <laughs> I just wish I could wear my union suit every every day. What do you say? Be, when you say union suit. What do you, you <laughs> what like? Do you really the, mean? the full red onesie with the little <laughs> oh buttons that go all the way down the flap <laughs> that in the would back. Be super that, cute. It was awesome. Yeah. Uh, that's what I mean by union suit. <laughs> Uh, I do song of the day every day, and so the kids really get into it, and they start sending me music, and it's really awesome. But 
Uh, there's one song that this kid just wants to listen to, and he's gotten his whole class into it, and it's Elmer Fudd's Grilled Cheese. And if you have not looked, I'm serious, if you have not checked out this 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 little 1 minute and 21 second video on YouTube, it is fantastic. And so it's, it's like the rage with my students right now. Elmer Fudd, Grilled Cheese. Can you at least describe it? Uh, <laughs> you know, it's... It's Elmer Fudd uh, just romanticizing a grilled cheese sandwich, and it is just fantastic. You should take a grading break. <laughs> it's an educational break. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, thanks to our teachers this week, Luann Fox, Lynn Shipley, Jason Staliga. Thanks, as always, to Matt Hodap, who produces the podcast. Thank you to KCUR 89.3, Kansas City Public Radio, where we tape. And remember, kids, be nice to your teachers. <laughs> <laughs>